thank you again for being here. I want to thank Chuck and Kyle for asking me to fill in in Chuck's absence today. And I want to thank the elders for this opportunity they've extended to me. Chuck has done a marvelous job over the past three months with his focus on our theme, the theme that we as a congregation have embraced, that is, that we are to love God, we are to love people, and together change the world. Chuck has focused his lessons on what it means to live out this theme in our daily lives. He's spoken about the covenant that we have with God. He's talked about how that we are to love God as God has loved us. He has spoken about the essential ingredient in our relationship with God, that ingredient of trust. He's talked about obedience and how that obedience flows naturally because of the love that we have for God and the relationship of trust we have with Him. Last week he talked about re, uh, repentance, true repentance that we are to have before God. And as I've listened to Chuck's sermons over the last few weeks, I've had to be honest with myself as I look inward and realize that I don't always trust God as I should. I don't always love as I should. I don't always obey as I should. I find that sometimes I'm just as guilty of, as those ancient Israelites who transgressed God's covenant time and time and time again. Sometimes I find myself with a faith that wavers, a faith that falters. And sometimes I find that my doubts are bigger than my faith. And I wonder, where does this doubt come from? Why do I allow those doubts to seep into my relationship with God? Now it may be that there are some of you here today who from the very first day that you heard the gospel message and made the decision to become a Christian, that you've never had a moment in which your faith has wavered. Maybe there's never been a doubt that has creeped into your mind. And if you're here today and that's the case for you, you may not get much from this lesson. For, but for most of us, I'm convinced that we have times. We have times when we are stronger than we are at other times. I'm convinced that there's times that uh, we have doubts, that we have questions, that we have no answers for. And those are the people that I'm going to be talking to today. You know, it's interesting that when the New Testament speaks of doubt, it largely speaks of doubt in the relationship of the believer. It focuses primarily upon the doubts of the believer. It's as if we must believe something in order to have doubts about it. 
Doubt is held up as a unique problem, a unique experience for the believer. I find that my doubts tend to separate themselves into three neat categories. Well, maybe they're not so neat, but I do separate them into three categories. Those three categories are doubts that are intellectual in nature, doubts that are spiritual in nature, and doubts that are circumstantial in nature. Intellectual doubts are those doubts that we get from the world about us. Those doubts that we see in our culture. When we first became a Christian, we were filled with those doubts. Maybe even before we became a Christian, we were filled with those doubts, but those doubts still creep in even to those of us who have been Christians for a long time. Those doubts from the scoffers and the naysayers and the worldly people round about us, the intellectual doubts that creep into our life. These have a major influence on our culture, on our society, and even on our faith. And if we give in to those doubts, we can begin to doubt the very foundations of our faith. You know those doubts. Is there really a God? Is the Bible really the Word of God, or is it just a collection of writings written by some ancient men that were put together in the form of a book for us today? Is this God's Word, or is it just the ideas of some old men? Is God, did God really create the world in just six days? You know that's impossible. Is Jesus really the Son of God? How could a man be God? How can any think, thinking, rational person that has any modicum of intelligence believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? If God is a God of mercy, if God is a God of love, how could he allow such dreadful things to happen in the world in which we live? We're filled with those intellectual doubts. We hear them all the time. We hear them every day. And sometimes they can attack the very foundations of our faith. But we also have those spiritual doubts, those doubts when we are Christians, those doubts that creep into our lives from time to time when we have to ask ourselves, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? Did I truly believe? If I'm a Christian, why do I struggle so much with my prayer life? Why, if I'm forgiven, do I still feel so guilty? You know those struggles. And sometimes I struggle with the sin that I know that I've committed and I wonder, did God forgive me really? Have you ever been there? Maybe you have. Sometimes we allow the weight of our sins, the weight of our past sins to weigh us down in our Christian race. And then we have those circumstantial doubts. You know, those are the questions that have no answer. 
These are the why questions of life. Why did this, you fill in the blank, happen? Why did my child get sick? Why did my spouse have to die? Why did my mom develop cancer? Why are we facing such struggles when the ungodly of the world around us seem to flourish so much? These why questions are those questions that meet at the intersection of our Christian life and the reality of us living in a fallen world. These seem to me to be the greatest doubts of all. These are the doubts that will, we will try to hide from the world. We don't want the world around about us and especially our brothers and sisters to know that we have these struggles and these doubts and these questions. But when we fail to deal with our circumstantial doubts, they will soon become spiritual doubts. And if we don't deal with our spiritual doubts, they will soon become intellectual doubts where we begin to blame God or deny God and we allow our faith to completely erode and die. You know, I think that's a little bit, uh, we see a little bit about, uh, about this from the example of Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 19, you remember the story of Elijah. You remember Elijah up at Mount Carmel. And there by the power of God, he overcame and destroyed 400 prophets of Baal. A man would say that he did that one versus 400, but we know that he did it with one plus God versus 400. We know the great victory that Elijah through the power of God has won, but very, a very short time later, we find Elijah running for his life under threat of death by Queen Jezebel. It says in verse four of 1 Kings chapter 19, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he may die, saying, it is enough, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. We find Elijah in the depths of despair, thinking that he's no more, he's no better than his sinful forebears, that he is no more worthy than those who had transgressed God's covenant in the past. A few verses later in verse nine, we find God coming to him when he's hiding in a cave and he says, if I may use Southern English, what are you doing there, Elijah? What are you doing there? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In Elijah's mind, he's alone. He's forlorn. He's been forsaken. Sometimes we can find ourselves like Elijah. 
Oh, I don't mean necessarily that we think we're the only righteous person alive. But we can find ourselves like Elijah feeling forsaken, abandoned, alone. And when we get to that point, our spiritual doubts become intellectual doubts. And we begin questioning God and we begin questioning our faith in God. And when that happens, all too many times, people leave the safety of God's church and God's people and they go back into the world. I'm convinced that most of us doubt from time to time. Doubt itself is not sinful or wrong. Sometimes it can lead to an even greater faith. When we read of Job's laments, uh, who can say that God condemned Job because of his questioning of God? In Psalms, verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 13, we find David as he cries out to God, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? David, this man that has been called the man after God's own heart, had doubts. He felt forsaken. He felt abandoned. He felt forlorn. And he felt that God had abandoned him forever. When I consider this, I, I, I find that those of us, if you're one like me, who have experienced periods of doubt, well, we're not alone. Many great people of faith have had their doubts at times. It's helpful for us, I think, sometimes to see how they dealt with their doubts. And in doing so, we can best see how we can deal with our doubts. As we look at, excuse me, as we look at the text that was read for us this morning, Matthew chapter 11, the first six verses, contains a section in which we see the great John the Baptist at a time when he felt forsaken, abandoned. And he himself, who a man that God called greater than all that has ever been born of man or born of woman, this one God praises so much, felt abandoned, felt forlorn, and he had doubts. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look? for another. John's question kind of indicates the expectations of the Jews of that day. We, we, we see that in Matthew chapter 16, in verses 13 and 14, when Jesus comes with his disciples and he asked the question, he said, who do men say that I am? And you remember the response said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. This, of course, after John has been killed. Most notably, the one that thought that was Herod himself who caused John's death. Some say that you're John the Baptist, but some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah. 
Some say that you're one of the prophets. We find confirmed both in the Matthew account, also in the, some of the apocryphal writings in 2 Maccabees and in other extra-biblical writings, we find that the, the Jewish understanding of that day is in, in preparation for the coming of Messiah, Isaiah would come. Well, we know that Isaiah was John the Baptist himself, but Isaiah was to come and Jeremiah was to come telling about the coming of Messiah. And there would be prophets coming just before the Messiah would come. This was the understanding of the Jewish mind of that day. So John is saying, you go send his disciples and say, you ask Jesus, is he Messiah, the chosen one, the one that was to come? Or are we to look for another? I think that you would agree with me that John was feeling some doubt. Why did this John, who in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 36, so, so strongly call Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? This same John who had made such a pronouncement, this same John who had baptized the very Son of God, who had seen the dove descend and the voice speak. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. This is the John that saw and witnessed that. But in the depths of his despair, John began to have doubts. He sent messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one or are we to look for another? John, no doubt, understood the prophecies of Isaiah. When Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 61, the first two verses, that the, that the anointed one would bring good news to the poor, he would bind up the brokenhearted, would proclaim liberty to the captives, would open the prisons to those who are bound, would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our Lord. That's really the message that John himself had preached. You remember Matthew chapter three and verse 12 where he said, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into, a, into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It seems like the apostles and others that John didn't really have a clear understanding about the nature of the kingdom Jesus came to establish. Those Jews of that day were looking for Messiah to come to reestablish the glory of the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon. They were looking for the establishment of a physical kingdom, but we know that Jesus never taught that he was going to establish a physical kingdom. But John didn't get that. He didn't understand that. He apparently expected Messiah to bring vengeance upon the wicked, to free the captives. And this is what the prophets had said. This is what John himself had preached. John was expecting deliverance, yet he was still languishing, languishing in Herod's prison. And Herod, by all worldly standards, was still flourishing. 
And just for this moment, for this brief moment, the fact that John's expectations were not met caused him to doubt. He is still in prison. He still wrestles with his doubt. He is still living with uncertainty. And he allowed that uncertainty to make him unsure about Jesus himself, the very foundation of his faith, even if just for a moment. And we sometimes find ourselves with doubts, with uncertainties, but we're not alone. Others who have gone before us and others who walk beside us even today have those same doubts and those same fears at times. I'm convinced that the church should have a message for those who have doubts. We should emblazon it proudly. If you have doubts, come on in. If you have questions, we welcome you. If you're uncertain, come on in. If you're searching for truth, come on in. We need to be open and honest with one another when we're in those times that we feel forsaken and forlorn and have doubts and uncertainties to know that God welcomes that, our truthful seeking. But how do we turn our doubts to a trusting faith? How can we make our doubts become strong in our trust of God? Well, let me look at Mark chapter 9, verses 20 through 24. There we find an account of a man who brought his son, who had suffered from an evil spirit, had been possessed with an evil spirit all of his life. He brought him to Jesus to be healed. It says in verse 20, beginning, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him, but note what he says. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I find myself there many times. Lord, I love you. Lord, I believe you. Lord, I have trust in you. Lord, help my unbelief. Help my weakness. Help my struggles. We sometimes find, you sometimes find yourself in that place. Do we sometimes come to God with our pleas, with an attitude that this father shows when, we, when he said, can you do anything? Do we sometimes come to God with our prayers, our supplications, and our pleas with an attitude that said, God, please, but I know you can't or you won't? I have. We see that doubt is not sinful in itself. It can be dangerous, but it also can lead us to great spiritual growth. So how can we, do, how can we have that spiritual growth? The first thing we need to do is to admit our doubts and ask for help. 
That's what John did. He went directly to the source for the answers. Luke tells us more about the response of Jesus in Luke chapter 7, verses 21 and 2. He says, in that hour, what hour? In the hour in which the disciples had come to Jesus with the question from John, are you truly the Messiah? In response to that question, it says that Jesus healed many people of diseases, of plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight and he answered them. Now, you go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. You see, Jesus didn't answer John's questions directly. Most of the time I find that Jesus doesn't answer my questions directly. We find the answer in Jesus' deeds. Instead of answering his questions forthrightly, he performed the miracles that had been prophesied of. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, we find there that, that when Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the lame man shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Jesus says, I do the works of Messiah. You go tell John you've witnessed the works of Messiah. God is not fragile. He can handle our doubts. He can handle our fears. He can handle our struggles. He can handle our worries and he can handle our unanswered questions. God is a big God. But we must be willing to go to him and ask for his help. But let me encourage you that if you're struggling, as I sometimes do, you don't have to fight this battle alone. Seek out a Christian friend that you can trust, a, a minister, an elder that you can talk to, someone with a strong faith, with godly insight. Ask them to walk on this journey with you through this period of doubt and this period of uncertainty. Like John, God may not answer our questions directly. He may not answer our questions in the manner that we expect. But God hears our pleas and he's concerned about us individually. I believe it was April Winningham who said this a couple of weeks ago. I told her I was gonna plagiarize her. It was in a Wednesday night Bible class when she said, don't be afraid to borrow some faith or words to that effect. And you know she was right on point. Sometimes we simply need to lean on others whose faith at that moment is stronger than our own. But this is a biblical principle. Paul needed Barnabas to encourage him when he was rejected in Jerusalem. The same Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14 that those of us who are strong are to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. When you find yourself overtaken with doubts and uncertainty, go find a Barnabas who is strong and borrow some of their faith until your 
faith is strengthened, you'll find that it works. And we need to act on our faith and not on our doubts. Consider the doubts that must have been in Noah's mind when God told him to build an ark. He was nowhere around water. He had never seen it rain. But God said, build this boat. I'm going to bring rain from heaven. And the fountains of the earth will overflow. Do you think over that hundred years that Noah had any doubts? I do. I think he got up every day and said, God, I don't know why I'm doing this, but in faith in you, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Do you think Abraham had some doubts when he offered up his only son on the altar? He was 100 years old or thereabouts, maybe older. He'd fathered two sons, but the one son of promise. Do you think Moses had any doubts when he marched on dry land through the, dry, the uh, Red Sea? Do you think David had any doubts when he faced Goliath? That's what Joshua did when he marched around the walls of Jericho. Act on our faith and not our doubts. That's what Daniel did. When he opened his windows and prayed, knowing that his life was in danger. That's what Nehemiah did when he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Now, don't you suppose these great heroes of faith had their doubts? Don't you suppose these great heroes of faith, being human, had their human doubts? They could not, could not know in advance what the outcome was going to be, but as it were, they took a deep breath and plunged on in anyway. They trusted God and they acted on their faith and not on their doubts. And when we do the same thing, we'll see that our faith will grow. We need to doubt our doubts and not doubt our faith. We can't allow ourselves to cast aside our faith simply because we're in a valley of darkness for a time. I believe all of us walk in that valley at one time or another, and some of us seem to stay there more than others. But though we may be in a valley of doubt, we can still lean on our faith. Like the psalmist said in the 23rd Psalm, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our doubts, we can know that God is still there. He will lead us and he will lead us through. Let me encourage you as one who has walked in that valley of darkness myself who has experienced those times of doubt and struggle myself. When you face those moments of time in your life that are uncertain and you're tempted to give up your faith and give in to your doubts, let me encourage you to remember two words. Keep walking. 
Keep walking with the Lord. There's light ahead. Just keep walking. Every step is a, te- is a step toward overcoming our doubts and overcoming our fears and growing in our faith. If we hold on to our faith, the light will shine again. And lastly, we need to go back to what we know to be true. After considering the trials of this physical life, Paul concludes Romans 8 by declaring in verse 38, for I am sure, your Bible may say I am persuaded, you may, your Bible may say I'm convinced, but Paul says I am sure. He declares that he is sure that there is nothing in this universe that can separate us from the love of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse, verse 12, Paul would say what the song that we sung shortly uh, a little while ago says. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He says, I know. I know who I believed. I know God. Some things we think, some things we hope, but there are things we can know. In times of trouble, we need to go back to those things that we know to be true. We can't know everything, but there are some truths that I'm convinced of. God is good. Jesus is Lord. The Bible is the true word of God. Life is short. Every day is a gift. People matter more than things. Fame and success is short-lived. Worldly fortunes will pass away. This world is not my home. I'm just a pilgrim passing through. And even tough times are meant for my benefit. These things I know are true. I have enough life experience to have experienced it. At the core of our belief system must be the truth that God is sovereign over our lives. It is his way that we must follow. God is God and I am not. When all things seem to fall down around us and everything seems to be falling apart, we can hold on to that one thing that never changes. If God be for us, who can be against us? In 1822, a young woman named Charlotte Elliott was visiting with some friends on the west side of London. There in attendance was a noted preacher of the day, Caesar Malin. Over dinner, the preacher asked Charlotte if she were a Christian. She responded by saying, I don't want to talk about that subject. The preacher replied, I didn't mean to offend you, but I want you to know that Jesus can save you if you will turn to him. A few weeks later, the preacher met Miss Elliot again. This time, she told him that she was trying to come to Jesus, 
but she just didn't know how to do it. The response from the preacher was, just come to him as you are. Taking that advice to heart, Miss Elliot went home and composed a poem. Began this way. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. In 1849, William Bradbury set those words to music. And since then, it has become what some have said is the most beloved hymn of all times. Some have said that the tune of Just As I Am has had more responses to the gospel than any other hymn that we sing. The third verse contains Charlotte Elliott's own testimony. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, with fears within and foes without, O Lamb of God, I come. The fifth verse contains the gospel promise. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise, I believe. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. You know, that same promise is still true today. God will never turn away an honest doubter. God will never turn away one who has honest questions. He welcomes us. He welcomes us with our questions. He welcomes us with our doubts. He welcomes us with our uncertainties. He welcomes honest seekers. And he welcomes our hardest questions. No doubt in and of itself is not sin. What we do with that doubt determines whether it becomes sin or not. So when you're here today and you're faced with doubts and uncertainties, when you're faced with the perplexities of this life, just believe. Believe that God is bigger than your doubts. God is a big God. He is God and we're not. If you struggle with doubts, if you struggle with uncertainties of life, if you struggle with those things that cause you to have weakness in your faith with God, this is a great time to respond to the gospel message. This is a great time to come and let that be known because you don't need to walk that path alone. Those struggles are not meant to be borne alone. Those struggles are meant to be shared. We're told that we are to help those who are weak. But let me tell you, there are times when I'm weak and I need your help. And if you're in one of those stages now where you're weak and you need our help, we beg you come as we now stand and sing this song for your encouragement.